This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Six months on from the federal election, it's clear we're in a new political landscape with an entirely different kind of prime minister. In a new essay, Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy, speaks to political strategists, labour ministers, independents and Anthony Albanese himself about how he rose through the ranks to become the leader that brought Labour back to power after a decade in opposition and exactly how Albanese plans to wield this power in this new era of politics. Today, the lone wolf and the new politics. It's Thursday, the 1st of December. Some of your quarterly essay charts Albanese's journey from lone wolf to a collaborative prime minister who's working with a very large crossbench in a new parliament. I want to talk through some of the key moments in in that journey. Can you introduce us to Albanese, the the rough and tumble, hard left student politician? Who was he then and what what drove him? Well, he was a he was a more left-wing, noisier, more aggressive, more impatient young person who had uh, grown up in uh, quite at times quite difficult economic circumstances, just him and his mum in the council house. He was a, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, a, a noisy, impatient, loud young man on the move. I think he sort of organised his first political campaign before he was a teenager. He sort of burned through school. He got into fights, he told me, at school because he, he ran hot. And uh, because he was a young person who had to shoulder a lot of responsibility very early in life, sometimes you displace that stress in in anger and aggression. Mm-hmm. And I think he willingly acknowledges that he did. I think uh, the sort of hard edges or, or sort of institutional edges of his politics sort of came in the university phase when he went to Sydney University. Uh, he's the first kind of person in his family to, to have a tertiary education. He revived the, the Labor Club at Sydney Uni and got into all sorts of scraps and scrapes while at Sydney Uni on all kinds of topics. You describe him sending letters to the young Liberals calling them capitalist pigs, which was a particularly fascinating anecdote. I really did love that story when Catherine Cusack told, uh, said it to me. Catherine Cusack, uh, some listeners will know, uh, was uh, became a, 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 was was in the New South Wales Parliament until very recently for the Liberal Party. She was young Liberal president at the same time as Albanese was <laughs> tearing through Labor politics at Sydney Uni, and she told me this great story that when uh, that he wanted to challenge her to do, to a debate, and he <laughs> he sent her. A number of typewritten letters with hand corrections, which uh, she recalls as sort of uh, you know, screeds, basically, uh, you know, capitalist running dogs type screeds from uh, the young left-wing firebrand demanding that she show up and debate him. Now, 
she was quite intimidated by him and certainly didn't want to turn up to a debate and have this haranguing match with this sort of young inner city activist who was causing a lot of noise on campus. So anyway, it's just a fun little vignette from his past. But, you know, beta elbow, as I like to call him, the beta version, yeah, noisy, louder, more left, less collaborative, more angry, more impatient, more in your face. These rough edges started to be smoothed off during Albanese's time as a, a federal politician, as member for Grainler, there, there was this pivotal moment where you say that he went from a kind of insurgent-style politician to an establishment politician, and a certain factional deal was really important in that. Can you tell me about that? Well, yes, to the extent of consolidating Anthony Albanese's power in the Labor Party. If you think about when he was coming up through politics, which is through the 80s, that was the peak of the New South Wales right. The New South Wales right ran the Labor Party. Anthony Albanese is from New South Wales and the left, and he is from the hard left in New South Wales, which was a minority group in the minority faction. So that deal that played out in the federal arena after he arrived here with uh, Mark Butler, who was another young activist from South Australia, left-wing activist, uh, was critically important because it gave him effective control of the left faction in Canberra, Anthony Albanese, I mean by that, or some sort of power-sharing control, I guess, is more accurate between uh, Anthony Albanese and Butler. Mm. Anthony Albanese, as I said, was minority player, minority faction, came to Canberra, didn't have enough numbers to get himself on the front bench. When Anthony Albanese and Mark Butler effectively took over the left federally, that gave them control of the faction Mm. and uh, much more influence, uh, much more ability to sort of advance their own causes and the causes of their supporters. So while it might sound a bit eye-glazing or a bit boring, it's actually really quite important to uh, forming the platform that Anthony Albanese then used to move through the ranks in Labor and eventually become opposition leader and, of course, Prime Minister. Albanese as an establishment politician was really kind of cemented during the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. It was an interesting time for him and he he learned a lot in that time about power and how to be a leader. Can you tell me about those years for Albanese? I think they are so important to, again, shaping his mindset during this period in government. I think what he learned in the Rudd-Gillard years is really critical, actually, to his prime ministership. Uh, One of the things he learned because, obviously, he ended up in a minority parliament with Julia Gillard was how to manage a a parliament where Labor doesn't have the numbers in both chambers. He was the manager of government business during that time. That made him the chief negotiator with the crossbench through all of that period. So a very fierce partisan Labor man learned during that period to collaborate, to form relationships that become very, very critical to the success of that government in terms of its policy agenda. Mm. The other thing that's really important about that period is it taught Anthony Albanese how quickly you can lose power. You can swing into government with a wave of community support behind you, uh, with a prime minister who is popular in the public imagination and you can blow it in a heartbeat. And if you blow it, you blow your legacy with it. 
And Anthony Albanese, I think, is very proud of some of the key uh, key policies that were implemented during the Rudd-Gillard prime ministership, but he is also acutely aware that not all of that legacy survived because the government was not around long enough to defend it. Mm. So those two lessons, I think, are really critical to understanding his mindset, that collaboration imperative and also that you've got to not just win power, you've got to create the conditions where you can govern for, govern for long enough to implement your reforms and to try and, you know, make them bulletproof. So Murph, after Labor lost the election in 2019 and Albanese took over the leadership, the party was in a really difficult position. In your essay, you reveal for the first time that there was this moment in 2020 where a group of Albanese senior colleagues staged a kind of intervention and that was an important turning point. Can you tell me about that moment? Yeah, it was really important. Obviously, different people have different recollections of it, but it happened shortly after Labor won the Eden Monero by-election. So this was a critical moment in opposition. At that point, uh, Scott Morrison was at the peak of his political power. You know, we were sort of in the opening months of the pandemic. Uh, Australians were rallying behind incumbents. Uh, there was a chance uh, that that Labor could have lost Eden Monero in that by-election, and that would have been very bad for the stability of the opposition and for Anthony Albanese's leadership. Labor ran a good campaign. They had a good candidate and a good strategy, and they held the seat. And uh, after, you know, Anthony Albanese is one of these, he's a confidence player. A lot of politicians are a confidence player. After that result, he was very pleased with himself, I think it's fair to say. You know, we've got it, we've nailed it, we've got the strategy, we're going to barnstorm in in 2022. It's all good, right? That was sort of his mindset. Uh, that was not the mindset of a number of his colleagues. The colleagues looked at him, thought, mate, you're not where we need you to be. You can't just assume that Eden Monero is going to replicate itself around the country. You need to be better. You need to be sharper. You need to be clearer. You need to be more collaborative. Mm. And so a number of Anthony Albanese's colleagues basically track that as the point where his mind became more focused on what he needed to do to close the deal and go on to win the 2022 election. I found it really striking to hear about how the Labor leadership team started collaborating and working together years out from the election, really, which is in stark contrast from what we've learned about how the Morrison government was operating at that time. How did this collaborative approach help Labor and Albanese in the campaign? Oh, in the campaign, it was so important. <laughs> I mean, you remember that, Laura, obviously. Can I ask you, you mentioned the Reserve Bank earlier. Do you know the official cash rate off the top of your head? Oh, look, we, we can do the old, uh, old Q&A stuff over 50 but different... do you know it? Over, over 50, 50 different figures. The opening week of the campaign was, uh, let's, let's just say, suboptimal uh, from, <laughs> from Anthony Albanese's point of view. He made a couple of, cr of critical errors in that first week. What's mm. the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment uh, is, uh, I think it's 5.4... Uh, Sorry, I'm not sure what it is. The group really rallied at that point for him and to, to stabilise the campaign. Then obviously, too, there was a, the now Prime Minister got COVID in the middle of the campaign, was taken off the campaign for a week. The campaign didn't miss a beat. 
they just they rolled on basically the the colleagues stepped up uh, they fanned out around the country they executed the strategy but through that hive mind through that collaboration and in fact the team as you've alluded to in your question was actually a positive point of difference with the incumbents, right? The Australian people did have that clear sense that there was a two-person government, right, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, and most of the others, people couldn't tell you who they were, mm. right? They weren't. They were neither seen nor heard. The Labor, you know, the Labor presentation was about a sort of a flatter leadership structure. It's about presenting as ready to govern, Therefore, I've got this team behind me. They're not idiots. In fact, they're quite good. Uh, and and we work as a group. We collaborate. We iterate. We adapt. Uh, and that's our offering. And uh, and I think that was actually a critical sort of subtext in the campaign that was more important perhaps than we realised at the time in terms of that signalling to the voters. The Labor review of their 2019 election loss concluded that they kind of tried to do too much. They were offering too many ambitious, big policies at the time and people were really confused. So when it came to this campaign in 2022, there was a long, drawn-out process to figure out their policies. What was guiding these decisions during this time? There were two, in my view, two critical policies. The first one, childcare quickly, was a captain's call. Everyone said to Anthony Albanese, oh, my God, we're not going to spend all that money on childcare, are we? Oh, my God. This Six is billion mad. dollars. This is, this is insane. We can't do this. And Anthony Albanese said to the colleagues, well, guys, I'll have a better idea if you've got one, but I'm not hearing one, and I think this is bang on where we need to be. Mm. And that was very important in starting a dialogue with Australian women, which, again, was a really key structural underpinning to Labor's election victory. In terms of climate, more controversial, more difficult. It was contested internally right up until the last minute. And I mean the leadership group in sort of running into the shadow cabinet deliberation. Uh, they they had what I describe, I think, in the essay as a collective anxiety attack in the, shad- in the shadow cabinet once the 43% emissions reduction target for 2030 was a concrete thing. They all looked at it and thought, oh, my God, are we... Are we a- are we going to kill ourselves again? Mm. Everybody just took a really deep breath at that point and thought, are we throwing the election away? Uh, Albanese himself didn't think that. Chris Bowen, uh, the minister responsible, didn't think that. But Albanese was very busy uh, trying to line up the atmospherics of that announcement. He had dinner with the Business Council of Australia uh, just a couple of weeks before they they wheeled that policy out into the public domain. Anthony Albanese had in his head, we need to get that moment. We need to get that moment where we have the policy, we can explain it, we can explain the implications and we get third-party endorsement. We don't end up in a situation like in 2019 where the Business Council of Australia described their emissions reduction target as uh, as economy wrecking. So, mm. again, they didn't know whether it would deliver them the formula that they needed in order to create a majority government. But as it turns out, it, it was so important, as various figures reflect on in the essay. Mm. Had they done what Joel Fitzgibbon spent you know, much of the term telling his colleagues to do, which was sort of sue for peace with the government and replicate the government's climate policy, they would have lost. They would have lost the election. And I think they all acknowledge that now. Next, 
How will Labor navigate Australia's new political environment? Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying the podcast we make at Guardian Australia, you should check out the Guardian Weekly magazine. It's a roundup of the most prominent news stories from Australia and across the globe. And at the moment, you can get 50% off an annual subscription, including home delivery, no matter where you live. Just search for Guardian Weekly subscription to find out more. So Murph, it's now been six months since Labor won government and they're presiding over a radically different political landscape. You describe it as a contemporary Australian progressivism, which is red, green and teal. It's a whole new kind of politics, really. How is this progressive bloc that we now have in Parliament working together? Well, I think so far so good on that point. There's certainly been scraps at the margins, disagreements, uh, and uh, we've we've seen the government have to make uh, amendments and concessions to various policies in order to navigate them through the through the House of Representatives and the Senate. I think they've got through the principal bits of legislation that they they told the Australian people they would get through this year, and that is a tribute to everybody's uh, seriousness and goodwill, I think, in the parliament in terms of that progressive bloc that we're talking about. Obviously, that has required give and take, uh, but they've got there in the end. Mm. Now, Adam Bant uh, was, came into the parliament where Anthony Albanese was the manager of government business. So their relationship, Adam, Anthony Albanese's relationship with Adam Bant was formed in that minority parliament. So Adam Bant, the Greens leader, has, I would describe as a high degree of trust. He, he doesn't agree with Anthony Albanese on every point and some of the sharpest product differentiation I predict we will see over the next 12 or 18 months is between Labor and the Greens. But in terms of do they trust one another, yes, is the answer, they do. Is there perfect agreement? No. And I think we will see more of the disagreement over the next 12 or 18 months. And in mm. terms of the Teal independence, well, obviously, they are new relationships for the Prime Minister. He hasn't known these folks prior to them arriving after the May election. So he's forming these relationships on the go. Uh, again, uh, obviously, look, if you speak to the Teal independence, not everybody gets all they want out of everything. Uh, you know, there have been some points of genuine frustration and disagreement, but I think the general vibe at the end of the f- of the first six months is positive. So, mm. uh, you know, I, d- I don't know if you're an optimist, you say that sets the template for the future. If you're a pessimist, you say, well, we're at the high water mark and it can only go <laughs> it can only go downhill from here. So, again, we'll have to just see how the next little bit plays out. Right. As you say in the essay, this progressive bloc will at some point be competing for progressive votes. Yeah. And surely that will lead to tension. Absolutely. How do you see this playing out in this parliament? Well, uh, I, I hope for the sake of uh, the sanity of the Australian public that we see it play out productively. 
that we see it play out in some of the policy deliberations that we've seen this year. I hope they do set the template because people actually have been able to agree and differentiate in a way that I would describe as being constructive. Mm. Uh, I can see, though, some opportunities where uh, certainly as the election gets closer, the different incentives start to assert themselves and that's where things get tricky, I guess. Some of this relationship building with the Teals and the Greens could be vital for the future of Labor. I mean, in the essay, Climate 200 leader Simon Holmes-Accord says that we are not far from the possibility of never having majority government again. Teals have largely targeted Liberal seats, but we imagine they'll run Labor seats in the future. What does Albanese see as, as the future of Labor in this increasingly crowded environment? Yeah, well, it is fascinating. And the, and the whole, again, the spine of the essay is we've got this uh, sort of major party uh, exemplar, as in Anthony Albanese, a partisan warrior for the Labor cause, is washed up in the prime ministership at the time where that mega trend of declining support for the major parties has sort of hit a zenith, right, hit a high watermark. Mm. But his overriding objective in this term of government is to set the Labor Party up as, uh, you know, as a major party actor for a long time of government in its own right. I think Anthony Albanese looks out into the great sea of the unknown out there in terms of the Australian people and their mindset and what they want out of politics. And he can see this disillusionment and disengagement with traditional major party politics. But he also senses opportunity for Labor in that environment. If he can send sufficient signals that he cares about the fundamentals, that he cares about integrity, truth in politics, that he cares about a policy agenda, that maybe people out there who have been turning more and more to uh, non-major party political candidates will actually look at one of the major parties, the Labor Party, and say, well, actually, there's something for me here. There's a connection point uh, here with this major political party that's got more than 100 years of history. Mm. So he wants to leave as a legacy cementing Labor as the, the the party of government or reversing the decline of the major parties. It's a... Exactly. It's sort of it's the, the ambition of that is kind of laugh out loud absurd, isn't it? It's sort of like, oh, my God, are you serious? But, but no, but that is genuinely, absolutely, sincerely his mission. Uh, if we go back to the beginning, Laura, just briefly, right, this left-wing firebrand, his whole milieu is these, these kind of Gramsci reading left-wing activists, Anthony Albanese could have been a Green, he could have been a communist. Uh, he the, the reason he isn't is he was hewn in a Labor tradition in inner city, in the inner west of Sydney, rather than those, those other groups that have different theories of government and change, right? Mm. So Anthony Albanese at his core is a power player. He thinks without power, there is no change. Other than consolidating Labor's position, what does Albanese plan to do? with this power? I think we can see two things that he sort of identified in his prime ministership early that really go, that really define him as a prime minister and a political actor. One is the voice to parliament. He's put a lot of capital on the line to try and get that across the line. Mm. The other thing is climate change because it lines 
the Labor Party, the contemporary Labor Party, up with uh, the Labor governments that uh, he is trying to model himself on, the Whitlam government, the Hawke and Keating governments. I think Anthony Albanese genuinely sees the climate transition as the economic transformation story of this generation of Labor parliamentarians. So it sort of brings together uh, that sort of, um, you know, that history of Labor Party, of the Labor Party in Australia as being a party of social reform and economic reform. The other thing I think that's just really important to him personally, uh, understanding the moment that democracy is in, both here and around the world. He looks aghast, I think, at the state of American democracy. Mm. Again, sort of to circle back to his origin story, he starts as this partisan, that partisanship and sort of um, asserting power over others and dominance over others is, is, is the key to everything, right? That's where he starts. Where he is now is obviously power still matters, but no change happens without persuasion. We've got to basically calm the country down sufficiently, calm the conversation down sufficiently to be able to hear one another speaking. Because if you can't hear people conversing with one another, no minds change. So I think that project of just slow things down a bit, calm things down a bit, try and pull the rancour and the polarisation out of the public square, I think those things actually really matter to him in this sort of sense he's got of being a custodian of representative democracy. I know that sounds a bit sappy, but, uh, but I think all of those things play on his mind. Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor. Her quarterly essay is called Lone Wolf, Albanese and the New Politics. It is out now through Black Ink Books and you can also find an extract of the essay at theguardian.com. We'll put a link to that on the full story page. This episode was produced by Jane Lee and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer for this episode of Full Story is me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.